0: touchdown. Fell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. There was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. he hit, hit, hit immediately he got the handoff, You know and what? that's the q Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the
2: TOJ Digital Studio, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at playlikeajet1. And unfortunately, one of the best streaks in all of professional sports is going to be broken this year, and that streak belongs to a friend of mine, Connie Carberg, who, of course, was a trailblazer, becoming the first female scout in the nfl back in the 70s her streak was 55 straight years that she had made it to jets training camp but now because of what's going on with coronavirus she's not going to make it this year so as much as everybody looks forward to seeing her every single year at training camp we're going to have to bring you the next best thing which is connie's on the show to share some of her experiences talk about some stories some of the people she's met and this way Even though you don't get to see her in person this year at camp, you'll at least get to hear her story. So, Connie, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Scott, it's my pleasure. And, yes, I'm going to miss all my fellow Jet fans and all my Twitter fans and everybody that we're all friends and, you know, so many wonderful people and seeing everybody there at Jet Camp. And it tells you how old I am by missing 55, going (laughs) 55 years straight (laughs) and never missing, but that's okay. I don't mind that. One of the nicknames
2: that you've picked up over the years, and you've shared this with me, came from Bobby Jackson, who was a cornerback for the Jets in the late 70s and the early 80s. And he called you Mama Jet. But before you were Mama Jet, you were just a teenage girl who was coming to training camp. Now, some people may not know about your background, but both your uncle and your father were on the medical staff early on in the 60s. And so that's how you got acquainted with the New York Jets, tell me a little bit about your early experiences at training camp with your uncle, your father, some of the players that you met. Sure.
1: Um, at the time, you know, I lived on Babylon, Long Island. And uh, I was 12, 13 years old. And my father, Dr. Calvin Nicholas, and my uncle, Dr. James Nicholas, the orthopedist, they became the two team doctors. Actually, it was, they were the Titans at the time. <clears throat> and Harry Wismer was the owner. And he was the doctor. Uh, My uncle Jimmy was the doctor for Harry Wismer. So he asked him to become the team doctor with the Titans. And then my dad joined in and my whole life just changed. Um, I became a fanatic about sports, even more now football and learning about football and the Jets more and more and more. And uh, they were training at Peekskill, upstate New York, which was a little bit of a drive, but we would go there during the summer and, Watch practices over there. And at that time, Sonny Werblin was still, he became the owner after um, Harry Wismer sold. And then, of course, he signed Joe Namath. And that was really big. When that happened and I got to see Joe there and my older brother, Chris Nicholas, he was a ball boy, which made it really nice. Back in those days, you know, they had just a few ball boys up there. And so he, I, he was there the whole summer and we would visit him as well. And everything was very, very loose and relaxed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, George Sauer was there on the team, and we became very, very close friends. He and my brother were very, very tight, and a bunch of the other players. And as they started to kind of form the team, whether it's Don Maynard and Billy Mathis and um, Matt Snell and Boozer, little by little, all that team was starting to be built that I grew up with that became the Super Bowl team. After they um, and after they started in Peekskill, after a couple of years later, they decided to move um, out to Hofstra University in Hempstead, Long Island. And That was glorious because that was only 20 minutes away from me in Babylon. So then I could go to jet camp all summer long um, as I was growing up in my high school years. And we were there all the time. My dad was there to take care of them, but I was there to go to practice. And, you know, they had two a days and sometimes three a days back then. So you could go all day long. Practices were all open. I know a lot of people that I meet everywhere down in Florida where I live. And when I go up to Jet Camp, and their families all talk about how they would always be at Hofstra practices to watch the Jets. It was wonderful.
2: So is training camp where you first
1: got your love of football? Um, I think, well, it just kind of started um, as soon as he became the doctor, and I started to go to the games when they were the Titans. I started learning about the game from an earth science teacher explaining it to me that I had who was a football coach. And then it just developed that way. But then going and meeting the players, you know, I think most people, once you meet a player and they become more than just a player, but a a human being that you now know and makes your route even harder for them and maybe want to learn more about them and then start to figure out what makes a good football player or how to judge a player. Um, It wasn't, again, things were very, very different back then. And they didn't have computers and they didn't have pre-draft physicals and they didn't have all that for a long, long time. Um, So it was, as I said, very different. And they were hitting every day in practice in full pads. Um, They lived in the dorms at Hofstra and just in the little regular dorms in those towers, high towers. So the beds were real small for the guys. Um, it was, but it was very relaxed atmosphere. You could see the players. There was no security, nothing. Um, it was wide open. Uh, it, it was real. As I said, it was a great time to, to be around the team that way. And then a lot of the times since we lived in Babylon, when the players had any kind of the, the families or even for their own physicals, they would come out to the house where my father had his office connected to our house. And so they would be examined and then they would come over and, and we would see them there. Also, we had a lot of get-togethers. And so whether it was George Sauer and Ralph Baker and Boozer and John Schmidt, and you can just uh, go through basically the, the whole team, they were always over at the house. And Walt Michaels is a coach and Weeb Eubank. And uh, at that time, you only had a head coach, two um, offensive coaches, and two defensive coaches. But we all really got to know each other and went over to everybody's houses together. And it was a very close knit group. So, uh, as I said, it it really became my whole life. While
0: sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted.
3: Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson. Play like a Jet. Play
2: like a Jet. Tell me a little bit about some of your experiences over the years with Joe Namath because he was there at training camp as a player and you saw him in that capacity. And then over the years, he's come back as sort of a mascot or a goodwill ambassador, if you will, for the Jets. And he's somebody that people love to see. But you've had so many years of experiences with him, many of them at training camp. I'm sure you have a ton of great Joe Namath stories.
1: Uh, Joe was something, he was so popular. First of all, the bit, he made the biggest signing bonus that was unheard of. Most of the guys back when Joe signed worked in the off season. They worked in insurance or at car dealerships or anything because they were, they were not making much money at all back then. You know, $50,000, $30,000, they weren't making much money. Then Joe comes in and he makes the $400,000 and a car, which was just unheard of. So he was a celebrity. Plus, with Sonny Warbell, he saw that he had this star quality. When Joe walks in a room, you feel it. To this day, you feel it when he walks in. He just—it's the when Joe walks in, you just you know it. And uh, he when wherever we went, there were tons of people get, everywhere. It was like the Beatles had arrived. They were just every every hotel, every place. There were just the girls were all there to see him. Every man wanted to talk with him, and he was just wonderful. You know he was more skeptical sometimes of adults that wanted his you know autograph or this and that, but with children, he always had time for them all. but as I said, he was mobbed everywhere that he went. Um, as I said, I was very lucky in the fact that um during those years, I knew him since the age of like say thirteen or fourteen. And he was always great to me until the time. And then, of course, I, when I worked for the Jets, after I graduated from college, I saw him there all the time. And he, he was wondering, I would bake apple pies for him. <laughs> so things were very loose back then. They had a little kitchen there at the Jets, and I'd make apple pies and that kind of stuff for him. I had um, one time, um, he, was gonna, he was deciding maybe to look at a place to live near me on Long Island. And so he came out to the house, and uh, my dad was examining him for something. And so then I got to go in this convertible and drive from my house to a, in Babylon to another place in West Islip. And we drove with the convertible, with you know, top down. I'm driving right through the village of Babylon where I live. I just want everybody to see me with with Joe Namath. And, um, you know, because it was like, whoa, here I am with the the biggest star. It You know, it it would be like being with Patrick Mahomes, okay? And except making Patrick Mahomes a, um, uh, you know, like a movie star on top of it. And uh, which is what Joe was. And so it was it was really exciting. But he was always, as I said, amazing to me. So I every time when if I went to Florida, when I went to college and I went down to visit, I always would go to visit his place and go to see him. Um, I, I've just been very lucky in all my times with Joe. Tell me about some of your
2: favorite players over the years Because in 55 years of going to training camp You've seen so many different players Before we started recording We were talking about a handful of different ones But I'm sure you've got a million stories I know Bruce Harper is one of your personal favorites He told the story when he was on the podcast About how you made him feel like a million bucks You made him feel like the most important guy at training camp Even though he was just a nobody, undrafted, free agent Out of Kutztown State at the time But he said that you were the first person That he met when he got to training camp And that you were so welcoming That it really helped his self-esteem And he thinks that that was part of why His performance was so good at training camp And he ended up making the team And had a really good run with the Jets there have been so many players like Bruce, some guys that were much more highly touted, some guys that were even lightlier touted than Bruce, if you can believe it or not, a guy who wasn't drafted. Tell me a little bit about some of the players that you've encountered and some of the stories that you have experienced since you've been at training camp all those times
1: boy there's boy you know there's just so many through through the years of of, of going uh, going to camp I'd say um. As I said, well, Bruce. As I said, you know, I never knew that I made that effect till late, you know, years later when Bruce Harper was telling the story. Of course, Bruce was like the first third-down back that there ever was, you know, coming out that Walt Michaels used him so beautifully coming out of the backfield and um, and catching passes and what he did. And um, I mean, he wasn't big, and if you saw him just coming in in this little Volkswagen out of Kutztown state driving with his coach. And I happened to be working at the front desk at that time when he walked in, but I knew who he was, even though he was a free agent. And I, and I guess that made a lasting impression, which I didn't know at the time, but I always tried to know everything as much as I could about everybody. And um, he was awesome. Um, as I, when, when we worked at the front in the front desk before I went up to the scouting department upstairs, I was also a receptionist in the front, and everybody came through. It was um, it was quite something. We had people. We had Pele come through, and we had Doctor J because a lot of them worked out. We had all these different people coming through. Lou Ferrigno, who was the Incredible Hulk. We had mm-hmm. people that were, you know, appearing at Westbury Music Fair coming coming through. It was, and a lot of them wanted to meet Namath. Of course, they, that's who they came to see was Joe Namus. Everybody wanted to actually meet Joe. So during that time, that was amazing. The players were, as I said, it was very um, loose until probably long after I left, when things started getting much tighter was around the time of Bill Parcells. That's when they started having more security. But up until then, like when they had Pete Carroll there, he put a basketball court in. Pete Carroll was... Awesome. I had stopped working there, but he was just a fantastic person and so friendly to everybody. And put a whole basketball court in so that players and people could meet there. You could talk to anybody. He always had time for everyone. He was phenomenal. Um, you know, and he only got to have that one year with the Jets. But as I said, he it was a really a fun time. He, my my son even got to be a ball boy during that time for Nick Lowry, the kickers. He was working with the special teams. Uh, it was, as I said, so those were great. Kerry Rhodes was a, an amazing guy. Uh, Kerry Rhodes didn't know me. This is long again, long after I left. And s- some players, Scott, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past. Some players, you can bring up any fan, any friend when you go there, um, and they will just make you them feel so at home, and you know that you can bring people up and talk to them uh, the players just aren't they're just not, you're not wanting to make a lot of small talk or they're shy or whatever but uh, Kerry Rhodes will talk to anybody he makes you feel at home and I didn't even know him and I was staying with my friend Kathy who worked in operations at the Jets every time I came up during the summer for two to three weeks and so he saw me and he saw me at practice every day and saw me out there, saw me talking to different people. And finally Kerry walked up and he says, who are you? And so I told him what I had done. And, you know, we became fast friends forever then. And as I said, to this day, whenever he comes up, we have a, we have a wonderful friendship. And through the years and, and now of course I watch him on his TV. He's on a TV show if loving you is wrong. And he does a great job. So, um, I, of course, I have all the guys from when I worked there, that whole group that played through the 80s, um, that were drafted through the um, 75, 76, 77, 78, 70, those, those drafts that formed the team of the 80s that was so good. All those guys. Uh, Greg Buttle, uh, who's got many talented person. Um, he's got a great singing voice. He was in a barbershop quartet. Guy has a lot of different talents and can do so many things. And um, I, re- I remember when he was in, he was in the last when the college all-stars were playing uh, against the pro team. And he was over there and he was a rookie. And I remember he would called me up on the phone. And he said, tell me, how do, the, how do the linebackers look? What do you think? How, how are my chances? And I'd say, I say, th- I think you're going to do just fine, Greg. And he came in, of course he had a really good career and you know we've been friends ever since as i told bobby jackson as i told you yeah he's the one that called me mama jet (laughs) um i I said uh, there's so many different people I, i don't even know where else
2: to go let's talk about the head coaches over the years because obviously each one runs training camp differently what's been the difference between some of the head coaches now everybody knows that walt michaels was one of your mentors and Joe Walton was different from Walt, and Bill Parcells was different from Rich Cotite, and we could go down the whole rabbit hole. Tell me about some of your experiences yeah. in viewing training camp and watching the differences between the different coaches.
1: Well, yeah, back in the old days, I said, um, first of all, just the way training camps were run is so, what makes the difference, first of all. You know, back then, uh, we Eubank, he was very – was pretty laid back overall. I mean, he was, he delegated a lot. He was uh, very, he was quiet. He didn't do a lot, a lot of yelling, um, type of thing. And, but he, but he got his point across. And of course, back then, the, you know, name is called his own plays. So you have to remember back then things were a little bit different and they, and they did that. And as I said, so as I said, that was very different. Then, you know, um, after that we had, we had Charlie winner, which was his son-in-law, who's the person that hired me, um, and then he was fair, fairly similar as far as, as temperament. Um, and then we went to, um, Lou Holtz and Coach Holtz, of course, is an amazing college coach, great motivator, probably the best motivational speaker that I've ever heard when I went to, and I've heard him speak many a time and, and phenomenal. And then, you know, he only came lasted that one year, just about to the end of the year in the pros, but it really wasn't for him. Um, and, but as I said, as a college coach, he was great. And he was full of emotion. He had coached at Ohio State, and he and I had a lot in common because he, was, he had been with Woody Hayes, and, of course, Woody Hayes, that was one of my mentors. So we had a very, very strong bond. And to this day, you know, we're still very close. And then then came my number one mentor, which was Walt Michaels. Walt Michaels was just a no-nonsense, coal mining, tough, uh, just all football, He all pro player. He played with Jimmy Brown, Otto Graham. Paul Brown taught him so much. And he's the one that was out there, as I said, very right to the point, no-nonsense. You don't need a lot of meetings. Just get your job done, and that's all you have to do. It was really a shame that he got let go. It was that was, to me, the biggest shame. And then Joe Walton came in. He was the opposite of Walt. Meetings, 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 meetings. And from what the players and people say, very good um, coordinator, not a great head coach. And then after that, I was gone. So I can't tell you how the other guys were to, to work for. So it's hard for me to say, but, you know, now, of course, things are different now when coaches can't do all the hitting and the two-a-days and the practices are so different. And what you can do and say with players is very different now um, than what it used to be.
2: Connie, in all the years that you've been going to training camp, have you encountered anybody that's been particularly difficult? Now, you don't have to name names, obviously, if you don't want to. But I was just curious if you've had any negative experiences that way. It doesn't even necessarily have to be somebody who might have been giving you a hard time because you're a woman. It might just be somebody who was being a jerk on that particular day. Have you had any of those kind of experiences in the last 55 years?
1: Yes. I I would say yes. I could. And one person that I only, I will name is Howard Cosell. Um, he was just not, not very nice to deal with. Um, and uh, that's, I was on the, I was manning the phones, uh, when I first went to work there and he was very, very, uh, demanding and, um, and just not, let's just put, not the easiest and not the nicest person to, to deal with one, you know, one of the few, um, he had a very high opinion of himself and i guess because he was pretty much of a superstar and um demanding but I would, but you know overall um i would say you know most people have been really wonderful there i and i have been treated really fairly and unbelievably like family through the years forever um whether it's you know um general managers owners coaches and players um most as uh, so, a you know I would say probably 95% positive.
2: So all the ownership groups have been good to you?
1: Yes. Yeah. Now, you know, as I said, I was, I was there with, um, Sonny Werblin. And then from there it was, they had the four, they had the four owners they had Mr. Hess was with another group. He had Townsend Martin, Mr. Islin and Mr. Lillison. When he passed away, it was at Mrs. Springborn. So they had a woman owner for a while and they were, they were all great to me. Then Mr. Hess eventually became the sole owner um, in the mid '70s, and that's who I was with. And so I did um, not—I wasn't there when the when he when the ownership switched over from Mr. Hess.
2: Tell me a little bit about the different training camp facilities, because there's been a few of them over the years. Hofstra is the one that we all remember the most for the longest stretch, but obviously there's Forum Park now, and there were facilities before Hofstra. Talk to me about the differences and which ones you liked and didn't like as much. Well,
1: Peakskill was just like a, you know, it was just a military academy field. It was just, there wasn't a heck of a lot there. So it was just, it was nice, but nothing to write home about. Hofstra, when they first got there, didn't have the building in 69 or 70 when they, they just would use the Hofstra field and they had this one little building where they would change in. Then they built the actual Weeb Eubank Hall, named after Coach Eubank, of course. And that's when, that's when I got the job and opened up the building with them in 74. And, that was, and it was, uh, it was great. It was, I was the only secretary person in there for the whole entire building uh, for the first couple of months until they hired Elsie um, Cohen, who became uh, the head coach's secretary. And then they had a few others, but the, they had a New York office that had the non-football people, in, and that was on Park Avenue. So they had the Hoster field that they practiced on. Then eventually they built uh, two AstroTurf fields on the other side. Um, I, eventually, I think eventually they, when um, Coach Parcells got there, he got a he got a bubble built, you know, for when they had um, bad weather and stuff for the outside. But they didn't have that when I was there. And then they went in 2008. Of course, I was really sad when they left Hostra. That was that was really hard to take because Long Island was so pro-Jet. You know, it was, it was Staten Island, Long Island, Brooklyn, Queens, all that whole area we're just diehard jet fans and everybody, you know, with Shea stadium. And then of course they moved to, to share it with the giants, which for me was really tough to take. Uh, for my history of always, I don't like to say hate, but really disliking intensely <laughs> as you can, mm-hmm. uh, the giants. Um, so that then they moved to um, Florham park. Um, and then, but then when Rex Ryan became coach, he wanted to go somewhere else to have the training camp. So then they went to Cortland and that was lovely. I never expected it to be as neat as it was, but it was, it was awesome. It was um, very laid back. It was just a great little community. They had a, a nice fields to practice on. Um, the players could be very relaxed. Um, uh, it just was uh, a lot of people took their vacations and they, cause they had two a days and people would come and really spend their vacations there. Then all of a sudden it went to one-a-day practices and everything changed. And then people didn't come as much up there. And then after um, Rex Ryan left, then we went back to Atlantic Health, which is a beautiful, magnificent place. Um, And the practice fields are unbelievable. It's the most beautiful place they could ever have. The only hard part is there's not a lot of of, um, parking and stuff for the fans to be able to watch practices. That's the only uh, downside to it. Otherwise, I'm telling you, what a magnificent place to practice.
2: I do enjoy Florham Park, although I do miss the old days at Hofstra as well. Connie, we'll pick this up tomorrow in part two because I know you've got a lot more to say. In the meantime, though, make sure that you are following Connie on Twitter at Connie Scouts. Check out ConnieScouts.com to get information on her book, X's and O's Don't Mean I Love You, her memoir. You can also watch the video called Forever a Jet, which was made by NFL Films. It tells her entire story through a 10-minute video feature, and it's also her pinned tweet on Twitter if you want to check it out, but you can find it on YouTube. If you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could go ahead and do that for us, really appreciate it. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. It doesn't take you much time. It doesn't cost you any money. So if you could go ahead and do that for us, we would be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.